Hello, this is Sam of Historian Explaining. A historian tells you why everything you know is wrong. These lectures are on SoundCloud, Podbean, YouTube, and other platforms. And if you can help to keep them coming, please go to my Patreon page. The link is in the description. So you may have heard, if you listen regularly, you may have heard my previous conversations that I posted recently with Hi, How Are You? about Judaism and specifically the origins of Hasidic Judaism. But now at this point, I'd like to return to my ongoing series on the history of the United States in 100 objects with object number 17, the Hiawatha Belt. And before I get into the nature and meaning and history of this very important object, I'll also just note that this year, this autumn, I had another commentary, social commentary article published in the same journal, American Affairs, as my previous article. This one is titled Into the Fairy Castle, and it's on Victorianism and the persistence of Victorian mindsets in our age. It involves Gilbert and Sullivan, but I won't give away more than that. And so if you're interested, I'll post the link in the description to that article, and thank you to the editors and staff of American Affairs. But also, if you don't necessarily want to see my political views, then you don't have to look at it. But regardless, without any further ado, object number 17, the Hiawatha belt. This object is a ceremonial decorated belt about two feet long and weighing several pounds. It's made of wampum or quahog shell beads sewn with sinew thread onto a leather pelt. It is in the possession of the Onondaga nation in central New York State. Its design dates to the 15th century or possibly earlier, and this particular object itself may in fact be the original dating to those early centuries or might be a slightly later copy from somewhere between the 15th and 18th centuries. So what is so important about this object? What makes it so significant? Well, it is an example of an, a particular art form, wampum belts, which have traditionally been used ceremonially among Iroquoian peoples in what's now the northeastern United States. And these belts were meticulously designed and created in order to mark diplomatic treaties and agreements among tribes and nations. So strictly speaking, it's not really a belt in the sense that it is not a piece of clothing, it is not worn on the body, it is purely created for symbolic and ritual purposes. They generally, as I said, are made from leather and sinew to sew together highly prized wampum beads, and that is beads that range in color from a deep blue-purple to white, and that are taken from shells of the quahog, large clams, that are harvested mainly on the coast of New England and then traded westward into the continent as highly prized trade items. These wampum belts were usually made by women of Iroquoian tribes around the Great Lakes region, and they would be exchanged in so-called condolence ceremonies which were very important and continue to be very important diplomatic occasions 
managing relations among social groups in the larger Iroquoian world. And the condolence ceremony, you could see it in some ways as roughly parallel to the Calumet ceremony, which is practiced among Algonquian Indians, where representatives of different groups come together and smoke tobacco in a pipe called a calumet in order to represent harmony and fellowship. Well, in the condolence ceremony, which by contrast is practiced among Iroquoian Indians, the different parties meet together, they exchange diplomatic greetings, they make speeches and orations, often in highly sophisticated language, and they express condolences for the deaths that may have occurred in one another's groups through warfare or other causes, and then they exchange diplomatic gifts. And these wampum belts are particularly important and prized diplomatic gifts, which often were commissioned specifically for these occasions in order to represent and seal diplomatic relationships. After being exchanged, these belts could be kept in the tribes for hundreds of years and used as mnemonic devices by which tribal leaders or elders could recite stories by which agreements and relationships were formed. So they have a political and diplomatic function, and they fit into a highly sophisticated complex of diplomatic ceremonies in America. So they are not just pieces of art. They have political and diplomatic meaning. And this very elaborate complex of diplomatic procedures for centuries has managed relations among different indigenous peoples in America and also came to involve Europeans. And it was very important when European colonizers came into the continent that they had to learn and often master these diplomatic practices in order to coexist successfully. And as I've mentioned before in other lectures, when Europeans first arrived in America, one of the first and strongest impressions that indigenous people recorded about them was that they were incredibly rude. They didn't know the proper diplomatic niceties and procedures, and they had to master them over time. And so these wampum belts in time came to mediate relationships that included Europeans and then later the, the United States. So by the 18th century, there were European colonists actually taking part in these condolence ceremonies, like I described, and creating artifacts and exchanging artifacts in wampum. Right? The, the value of wampum was recognized and adopted by Europeans, and this persisted even after American independence. And there's another very famous wampum belt that was created in the late 1700s in the aftermath of the American Revolution. And this one shows a series of 13 joined human figures surrounding a house which were intended to represent the 13 independent states. And this particular wampum belt was given by George Washington to the Iroquois Confederacy, or Haudenosaunee, as they're properly called, in either 1789 or 1794. So this is an example of a famous symbolic wampum belt, but that one is not the oldest. There are others that are extant that are clearly older, and this particular one I'm going to talk about, the Hiawatha belt, may be the oldest one currently in existence. It's certainly the most sacred and meaningful to the Iroquois today. 
And this one, the Hiawatha Belt, was designed in order to mark and solemnize the most impactful diplomatic agreement in the history of Iroquois civilization. And that is the proclamation of the great law founding the Haudenosaunee Confederation, or Iroquois, as Europeans have called it. So there's a little bit of name confusion here, you can see. Most of the indigenous people in the northeastern United States and eastern Canada belong to the Algonquian language family and have certain common customs as well as related languages. But a big exception is the cluster of Iroquoian tribes and nations, which are generally around the eastern Great Lakes area. They include tribes that have been called Iroquois as well as Hurons. But that name Iroquois is not really the proper original endonym of these peoples. It's a European term that the French first applied to them, and it's of unknown origin. We don't know, and it's debated whether it might have come from French or Basque or an Algonquian language, but it is not their original name for themselves. And the confederation that five of these Iroquoian tribes formed at some point before European contact is properly called the Haudenosaunee, and it can be, they can be referred to as Haudenosaunee Nation or Confederation. And that name Haudenosaunee means the people of the Longhouse. I'll explain why. And they're also sometimes just called the Five Nations or later the Six Nations because another one joined. So it's a complicated political history and a lot of it is intentionally encapsulated in this Hiawatha belt. So the belt, at least the design of the belt, was surely commissioned to mark the sealing of the formation of the Haudenosaunee Confederacy. And what happened? How did that come about? Well, the events that led to the creation of this confederation are recorded in the oral history of the Haudenosaunee. So hundreds of years ago, if we go back to several centuries before European contact, there were various Iroquoian tribes speaking related languages all around the Great Lakes area, and these tribes were constantly at war. There was a great deal of unnecessary bloodshed, frequent captures and kidnappings between groups. This violence actually came to a particularly intense pitch because of the reign of a particular tyrant who ruled the Onondaga nation, who was called Tadodaho who was uh, an especially bloodthirsty dictator. And so in this time of violence and instability, it seems that a prophet emerged, whose given name was Deganawida, but he's traditionally called the peacemaker or the great peacemaker. And this prophet had visions and he preached a message of unity and coexistence among the tribes in Iroquois. The peacemaker had a very difficult time getting a movement and persuading people to embrace his message. But an early convert that he won over was an orator in the Onondaga nation named Hiawatha. So oratory has always been very important and impactful in the Iroquoian world, right, where you don't have tremendous differences between upper and lower classes. There's a general sort of equality among households. Men who can deliver powerful and persuasive orations can really sway events. And Hiawatha was very talented, 
but he, of course, immediately bucked heads with Tato Daho. The two of them distrusted each other intensely, partly because Tato Daho had killed all of Hiawatha's daughters. So this was a natural situation to give rise to enmity or blood feud. But Hiawatha tried to put that aside and persuade the tribe to embrace the peacemaker's message. He met with tremendous opposition. And in the meantime, the peacemaker left and went east into the Mohawk territory. So another powerful Iroquoian tribe that lived further to the east, closer to what's now the Mohawk and Hudson Valleys. And the peacemaker was able to perform feats and miracles that persuaded the Mohawk to take him seriously. And in time, he convinced them to embrace his message. So the Mohawk were the first tribe to take up the idea that all of the Iroquoians in this region should form some kind of unified alliance and peaceful coexistence. Now, after gaining that support, the peacemaker then returned back to Onondaga territory, which is more or less right in the middle of what's now New York State, around Onondaga Lake. And rather than trying to confront Tadodaho directly, instead he consulted with a very powerful and influential woman named Jigon Sasi, who was the keeper of the grain stores of the Onondaga. And this was very important because she could dole out grain supplies to the war parties who were frequently setting out and returning to Onondaga. And Hiawatha persuaded her to withhold this grain and use her leverage. And furthermore, Jigon Sasi offered use of her longhouse, which was a very big, capacious longhouse. She hosted a gathering of the elders from five different tribes around the region. So at this meeting or this sort of ad hoc council in her longhouse, the peacemaker, Hiawatha, the orator, and Jigon Sasi, together with the Mohawk representatives, were all able to sort of surround Tado Dahu and pressure him to accept the proposal. So with this extreme pressure, eventually Tado Dahu conceded to the wisdom of the proposal. So the peacemaker dug up a large white pine tree in the Onondaga territory and had the various leaders and chiefs of the five different tribes bury their weapons in the cavity beneath the tree and then replanted the tree. So you may have heard of the term, you know, burying the hatchet. It's a common belief that ritually uh, burying a weapon signifies and seals a, a peace or a truce. So all of these tribal leaders buried their weapons under the white pine. And shortly after, the great law of peace was proclaimed. And according to this proclamation, each of the five tribes would govern themselves under their own councils, but according to a single uniform law, there would also be a further single council of elders or great council, which would gather regularly at Onondaga, the most central location, and would be able to administer justice and resolve disputes peaceably among the five tribes. 
And Jigon Sasi, who was so influential in getting this law enacted, she then chose Tado Daho as the sort of chief leader or president of this great council, which may seem shocking, but reportedly she changed his mind. She sort of effected a reformation in his character and his psyche so that he changed from being the enemy of peace to being the proper leader and overseer of this new peaceable order. And this set the precedent that henceforward the leading women of each tribe, or the so-called clan mothers, would elect the counselors and presidents in the great council. So although the, the leaders were male, they were chosen by the respective women. And they called this new confederation Haudenosaunee, meaning people of the longhouse. And so this had both a literal and figurative resonance. The, the confederation was literally formed in Jigonsasi's longhouse, and also they created a sort of figurative longhouse. Very often these longhouses could be tremendous and divided into sections along the central axis that might house different families and clans. So in a sense, they were all joining together like one extended tribe in one structure under one roof. So when did this happen? When did the confederation form and when was this great law of peace proclaimed? Well, we don't know exactly because the oral history doesn't include any dates in the European Gregorian calendar. But there is one aspect, there is one story in this oral history which says that at the time, the Seneca nation, which was over at the western end of this region, was plagued with infighting and civil war within the tribe. And this infighting only ended one day when the sky went black like night. And you can imagine that sounds a lot like a solar eclipse. So historians have looked through the astronomical history and seen that the last solar eclipse that occurred in this region before European contact was in 1451. And the, the previous one before that was several centuries earlier. And the date of 1451 seems to line up reasonably well with archaeological evidence of a cessation of hostilities and a, a period of greater stability in Iroquois. So that is our best guess that these events that formed the Haudenosaunee Nation took place around 1451. So... What does this have to do with the Hiawatha Belt, which we suppose was probably first created to mark this momentous event? Well, if we look at the belt, it has a geometric design traced out with white beads amidst a dark violet-blue background. So this belt has an especially large concentration of those rare and valuable deep blue beads. And the design is in white, and it shows a so-called covenant chain with five forms representing the five nations. And those five nations pictured on the belt are traditionally recited from east to west, following the path of the sun through the sky. So the easternmost is the so-called Mohawk, though Mohawk also is a misnomer. It's an, an exonym applied to them by Algonquian peoples. Their actual original name for themselves is Kanyan Kehaka, meaning people of flint. 
And at the forming of Haudenosaunee, they also were given the title of Keepers of the Eastern Gate. It was understood that they would guard the eastern flank of this new united confederacy. Next after them is the Oneida, which means people of the standing stone. Then in the middle is the Onondaga, or Keepers of the Council Flame. And the Onondaga were understood from the beginning to have an especially great importance, a sort of central role in the Confederation, right? Hiawatha and Jigonsasi, who were proponents of the Great Law, were Onondaga. So was Tadodaho, the first leader of the Great Council. And they were given a ceremonial role of keeping the wampum that would record the law of the Confederacy and also of keeping a sort of eternal flame around which the Great Council would always meet. So the Onondaga are at the center of the belt as keepers of the Council flame, then the Cayuga, or people of the Great Swamp, and finally the Seneca, or Great Hill people, who also then have the title of keepers of the Western Gate. So you have this sort of secure structure with the Mohawk at one end and the Seneca at the other and the Onondaga keeping the flame in the middle. And the design and look of the belt has, I think, a great significance. It's very balanced and symmetrical. It shows regularity and an unbroken chain running through the whole design, symbolizing unity and stability. Each of the nations is represented with an abstract form, not human figures, which is a common motif on many other wampum belts. This one only shows abstract geometric forms, clearly representing entire peoples or tribes, not individual leaders. So this was not just an agreement or a treaty among particular leaders or chiefs. It was intended to be a perpetual agreement, perpetual bond among the tribes. And four of the five are shown with square shapes, which I think represents solidity, security. The white is said to represent purity of intention, right? That they have put aside malice and resentment and joined together with purity of intention. And in the middle, the one tribe that stands out that is not represented by a square is the Onondaga, which, as I said, is a centrally important tribe in this confederation. And the shape that represents the Onondaga is ambiguous. The belt itself is reversible. There's nothing on it that necessarily says which way is up, right? Well, there's no human figure with a head on top and legs down below. It's reversible. And so the central shape of the Onondaga is a peaked shape, which can be seen on the one hand as a heart. It's sort of a heart shape with a line that might be like an artery coming out of the top. And so it represents the center of the confederation, the place that gives it lifeblood and heat. Or you can reverse it and see it as a peaked form pointing upwards that looks like a tree with a trunk. And in that sense, it can represent the white pine tree under which the weapons were buried. So there's a clever kind of double meaning, double resonance to the form. And as I said, it's clear that the Hiawatha belt was made in recognition of the new law. And it was then deposited with the Onondaga as eternal keepers of this pact. And it was brought out through the years occasionally for meetings, especially of the Haudenosaunee Grand Council. 
So it sort of legitimizes the ritual, kind of like you might say a synagogue service is legitimized by the opening of the Ark and the bringing out of the Torah scroll. The the wampum belts served a similar purpose. And there were several wampum belts used in Great Council ceremonies, but this one was the most important. So the Hiawatha belt is significant also because, unlike many other Native American polities, the Haudenosaunee Confederacy continued to be a major power player, and it persisted on the political scene well into the era of colonization. So it was generally stronger and more enduring. It was able to hold up effectively against European onslaught, despite large demographic losses to disease, which the Haudenosaunee suffered just like all other native peoples. Nonetheless, they were able to hold their ground, especially in that kind of core area that's now upstate New York. And the Confederation engaged in strategic trade, diplomacy, and intermarriage with Europeans, especially with the French. And they sometimes were seen as kind of junior partners in diplomatic relationships, but they were never subjugated all the way up through the 18th century. And they maintained their political position partly by playing the British and the French off against one another. So the British, by the early 1700s, the British held most of the Atlantic seaboard, the Hudson Valley, while meanwhile the French still had sway on the St. Lawrence. The Haudenosaunee were sort of in between these two expanding empires, and they were able to kind of play uh, a game of, of a balance of power, almost like this, the same sort of balance of power game that was going on at the same time in Europe. And they produced many powerful leaders who could carry a lot of weight in diplomatic relations, and a lot of them were people of mixed ancestry, such as, for instance, the Montour family, who were an important family of mixed French, Seneca, and Mohawk ancestry. And in some cases, some of these individuals were very prominent and could kind of manage relations across the civilizational divide because the European civilization was patrilineal, names and status and inheritance came down from the father, whereas the Haudenosaunee were matrilineal. One's status came from the mother. And so there were some individuals, especially because there was a, a scarcity of European women, some individuals were born of European fathers and indigenous mothers, and hence could borrow the sort of status and prestige of both sides. So that was a phenomenon that happened many times all around North America. But also in among the Haudenosaunee, there were some who were exceptions to this, like, for example, Catherine Montour, who was also called Queen Catherine, who was very respected by the British, the French, and the Haudenosaunee. She had a Mohawk father and a partly European mother. So it, it wasn't all just one uh, model. And arguably, the Haudenosaunee actually rose to the height of their power in the early 1700s. Uh, and at that time, another Iroquoian-speaking tribe further south, called the Tuscarora, engaged in a, a war with the colony of South Carolina, in which they took heavy losses, and they ended up retreating and migrating north to the Hudson Valley, and they joined the Confederation. So instead of just five tribes, it became six. And so sometimes you'll hear them referred to in the 1700s as the Six Nations. And so for a time in the 1720s, 30s, 40s, they were 
almost in a heyday as a major regional power, but their position was dramatically undercut then by the Seven Years' War, in which the British completely defeated the French, at least in North America, and expelled all French political and military power off the continent. So after that point, the Haudenosaunee were then completely surrounded by the expanding British Empire, and they had to somehow hold off this British expansion, which had a tremendous growing population and a tremendous desire for land, much more so than the French. The French colonial population had always been much smaller. So they were now in a much more precarious situation. They couldn't play the same kind of inter-imperial diplomatic game as before, And then they were presented with a possible opportunity by the American Revolution, just 20 years or so later. So with this sudden uprising and rupture between the British colonies on the Atlantic seaboard and the British homeland, the Haudenosaunee had to decide how to respond. Could they take advantage of this, maybe by taking the side of the British against the colonists, who were generally more eager for territorial expansion than the home country was? Or should they take the side of the Americans in hopes of making an advantageous deal with this new rebel republic? Should they remain neutral? Should they try to play the two sides off each other as they had done before? Well, there was a lot of confusion and different Haudenosaunee took different sides. Some tribes sided with the British, some with the Americans, some like the Seneca were divided into different camps. And what ultimately ended up happening is that the American revolutionaries basically decided that the Haudenosaunee were a threat They didn't want to deal with them diplomatically, and they were an obstruction to their expansionist ambitions. So the Americans dispatched General John Sullivan in 1779 up into Iroquois, particularly to attack the Seneca and Cayuga, and he destroyed several towns and dispersed thousands of people. Ultimately, the Confederation was devastated by the revolution and this sort of political collapse. Many of them emigrated, And others who remained behind, such as the Onondaga, who remained in place, their territory was rapidly seized and reduced by the state of New York. And the Onondaga specifically lost about 95% of their territory between 1779 and 1820. Some of the Haudenosaunee who did flee or emigrate, especially those who were Christian, were able to reconstitute new villages and societies in the West, such as in Wisconsin or North in Canada, where the British continued to rule. But even within Iroquois, the Confederacy still continued to hold on and function, at least as a much reduced political entity. And over time, they were able to assert their sovereignty within New York State, and they still exist now as a recognized uh, sovereign commonwealth. So what happened to the Hiawatha Belt in all these events? Well, as I said, it was probably made as part of a treaty ceremony, and the one that survives today in the possession of the Onondaga may be the original from that moment, or it might be a very old surviving copy. We know that it is very old because it shows wear and tear from age and use, There is a patina around the edges of the leather, such as accumulates from handling over many years. And there are signs of repair, stitching to mend tears, and a combination and juxtaposition of newer and older beads. 
suggesting that broken or worn out beads have been replaced over time. So this is something that has clearly been used and maintained through centuries. We don't know exactly what happened to it in the 18th or 19th centuries up until 1891, but we know that as of that year, in 1891, it was in the possession of Thomas Webster, the official wampum keeper of the Onondaga. And in that year, Webster, in return for $75, which was a pretty modest sum, Webster agreed to give four wampum belts, including the Hiawatha belt and the George Washington Treaty belt, over to a federal agent, General Henry Carrington. And he did so on the understanding that Henry Carrington would then deposit the belts with the Smithsonian Institution in Washington, where they would be protected and preserved. However, this arrangement didn't work out because the federal government refused to reimburse Carrington for the purchase. They did not consider these to be significant enough artifacts. So having lost that bit of his own money, Carrington then turned to the private market and he sold the belts to an antiquities collector in Boston. And this antiquities collector intended then to sell them to the Museum of Fine Arts Boston. But once again, this deal also fell through. The MFA Boston couldn't raise the money and declined to purchase them. So this antiquities collector then again put them on the private market. The mayor of Albany in New York found out about them, and he considered them to be part of New York history. So he bought the group of four for $500. So by now, someone has made a pretty big profit. And the mayor then lent them out to the New York State Commission that was creating New York's exhibit in the 1893 World's Fair at Chicago. So they were displayed at the World's Fair and seen by thousands of people. Now, you might imagine when word of this got back to the leaders of the Onondaga tribe, they were shocked and appalled. Many of them didn't speak English or had very limited English. They didn't know that this transaction had gone on between Webster and the federal agent, much less did they expect that they would show up at the Columbia World's Fair. So they were outraged and tried to find ways to obtain the belts to return them to their collection. But they didn't have the skills or connections to sue in court. So they persuaded the New York Board of Regents to sue on their behalf to get them back. However, in order to have standing to sue, the New York Board of Regents had to be named as the official wampum keepers of the Onondaga nation. So the Onondaga agreed to do this. In this capacity, the regents then received from the Onondaga a further collection of wampum belts, which they then entrusted for safekeeping to the New York State Museum. So there is one group of belts that are technically owned by the Onondaga, but they're entrusted to the New York State Museum. This other group of four now are still out there in the possession of the mayor of Albany. And the Board of Regents tried to sue to get them back, but the cases were always dismissed. The legal effort failed. And eventually, the widow of Mayor of Albany bequeathed them to the New York State Museum in 1927. So now this group of four is officially, legally, in the possession, in the ownership of the New York State Museum. And in the eyes of U.S. courts, they now own these outright. 
So the Onondaga then applied to the New York Board of Regents to get them back into their ownership, into their hands. But the Board of Regents now refuses. So this seems like a, a tremendous betrayal, right? That they are supposed to be the wampum keepers on behalf of the Onondaga nation. But when it comes to these most crucially important ceremonial belts, they are now claiming them for themselves and refusing to even recognize the Onondaga as the owners. So this becomes a point of contention for decades, and it reaches a new height in the 1960s. It becomes a sort of popular cause celebre among the Haudenosaunee. There are protests and sit-ins, but the regents still refuse to give the belts back. The issue dies down for a time, but then reopens again when new museum directors come to the New York State Museum in the 1980s. And these new museum directors agree to open negotiations with the Onondaga, and the negotiators shuttle back and forth between Albany and the Onondaga Reservation, and the two sides agree to drop the dispute about past dealings and to basically shelve the question of exactly how the belts were obtained and who obtained them legally or not. They just put that aside and instead they agree on the principle that ultimately all of the belts should be transferred to the Onondaga, but with certain conditions. So the two sides agree to certain stipulations, that all of the belts will be properly preserved and conserved for posterity, that no repairs or redesign will take place that would change the meaning of the belts, that they will never be sold but remain perpetually in the possession of the Onondaga, and that they will continue to be accessible for scholarly research. So on these conditions, the two sides signed a formal agreement and the belts were handed over from the regents to the Onondaga in 1989. And after that point, they were kept in a bank vault for safekeeping in Syracuse and left there except when taken out for educational or ceremonial use. For a period in the 2010s, the Hiawatha Belt and several others were taken out for display and given into the care of spiritual leaders of the Mohawk, who also, you might remember, were the first converts to the peacemaker's message. And then after a time, they were formally returned in a ceremony at the shores of Onondaga Lake in 2016. So as of today, they are owned and possessed by the Onondaga nation, but again, are accessible to the public and to scholars. And also, as part of the legal agreement, several replica copies were made. So exact copies of all four of those important belts can be seen in the New York State Museum and in other collections. So thank you so much for listening. And again, if you are interested or curious, I will post a link to my article in the current issue of American Affairs. And if you can help to keep these lectures coming, and if you want to hear the patron-only materials, including the next History of the United States in 100 Objects, please go to my Patreon page and become a supporter at any level. Thank you.